0: I want to let you know that starting this Sunday, for a little while, we're going to do things a little differently in terms of our worship. In our growth and maturity as a congregation, um, we continue to try to come closer together as we seek to draw closer to God. And as your senior pastor and leading you in worship in that growth and in that maturity, um, I'm always praying and endeavoring for how we can, can do that. How can we draw closer together and draw closer to God? One of the key words in worship that you probably have heard before, it's a bad word for some people, is liturgy. But liturgy simply means the work of the people. And it's, the idea is, is that worship is meant to be participatory. That you're not an audience, you're participants in this worship service. And that we work together to give praise to the living God. And so part of this growth and maturity is how can we participate more and more in the worship that God is having take place in this time, in this space. How can we have it become more integrated so that we're not separate in how we worship and so it doesn't just stay isolated into this place. And so this morning, the sermon's going to be a little different than you've ever experienced it before with me. There are going to be opportunities where... The sermon's going to get broken up to give it chances for reflection. So that you can chew on the word of God. And so that you can also appreciate in those moments of reflection how all of what we do in planning worship ties together. How there is a flow to our worship service. And the hope is through that reflection, that sense of flow and integration, that you'll also get a model or an example of how that is to be taken out into our lives. How do we find that flow? How do we find that integration of our worship in our daily lives? So if that explanation has confused you even more, just stay tuned. With your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 20, this Sunday marks the beginning of the end of our reflection on the book of Exodus. And as I've told you once, I'll tell you a thousand times, pastors hear everything you say within the community. And when people heard that we were going back to Exodus, they're like, back to Exodus? We've been in Exodus for a year. We have been in Exodus for a year. It's a long book. And in fact, if you haven't been keeping track, if you weren't with us this summer, we were spending four months alone at the base of Mount Sinai with the Israelites. And part of this is because Exodus is a long book. but Part of this is so that we get the sense of their experience in the wilderness and on the mountaintop. (laughs) A journey that started in slavery a year ago has taken us through the plagues and the mighty waters into the freedom of the law. The grace of Exodus has led this summer to the lessons of the Ten Commandments. And as we learned this summer, the Lord God wasn't just giving rules on Mount Sinai. Yahweh was unveiling his character. The Lord had acted to release his people from bondage so that they might bond with him. In the barrenness and uncertainty of the wilderness, this God revealed how to survive how to truly live how to be in relationship with him and as we turn to Exodus 20 starting with verse 18 we will learn how the people responded to Yahweh's invitation into greater intimacy with him let's hear the word of the Lord when the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke they trembled with fear They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord has extended an invitation to relationship. In our modern vernacular, if you will, God has put himself out there. God draws near the people through the giving of the law, the manifestation of his presence. But as we just heard, the people remained at a distance. We can literally picture them backing up in fear. Israel had praised God for what God had done for them. But now it's as if they were putting up their hands and saying, thanks, but uh, don't come any closer. Moses, we will listen to you, but if we hear from this God, we're dead. And they were right, too, partially. Listening to the Lord would have resulted in their death, the death of their wills. Listening to the Lord drawing closer would have meant surrendering their control, releasing their expectations, their definitions, their standards, their ideas of what it meant to live and be. And they realized this when they heard the peal of the thunder. They understood that this was what was on the line when they saw the flames coming from the mountain. They could not see through the other side of their death. They could not perceive that in their death there was also resurrection the new possibilities that would emerge, the new possibilities that God would deliver on the other side of their death. Don't come any closer. I don't know about you, but for me, Israel's reaction is all too familiar. This is one of those places where we're too much like Israel, aren't we? I mean, we rejoice over what God has done for us. We came in this morning, we just praised the Lord together. Lord, you are the everlasting God. We rejoice over what God has done for us. Like the Israelites, we've been rescued. Like the Israelites, we've been provided for. Lord, thank you for providing. We've been guided in our lives. Lord, thank you for guiding me in my life. We've been saved. But when this God suddenly draws the, it takes the initiative and wants to get near us. Like the Israelites, we put up our hands and we back away. You know, as a pastor, I I can't count on my hands the number of times people have said to me, you know, I would believe in God, I would engage God if God would just show up and reveal himself to me. Man, I would believe in God if God would just show up and reveal himself to me. We have no idea what we're saying when we make statements like that. This is a passage that brings out when we say that, we have no idea what we're saying. God showed up and revealed himself to the Israelites. And the Israelites backed away. We have no idea what we're asking for because when God shows up, he doesn't just want to be Santa Claus. Hey, ho, 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 here are a few presents, see you next year. When God shows up, he wants to take our relationship to the next level. He wants to reshape. He wants to transform our lives. But beloved, for most of us, if we're honest, when it comes to this God, we want to enjoy the benefits. We can come for about an hour, an hour and 15 minutes and give praise to God for his benefits. But we don't necessarily want to be transformed by the presence of God. In our American society, we have an expression, justice is blind. And that means that justice is impartial. It's not discriminatory. But here we see with this God that justice is not only blind, it's also decidedly personal. For this God, justice, law, the point of all of it is the relationship. The point of giving the law, the point of justice, the aim of the benefits is our transformation. Beloved, we worship a God who is so single-minded in his desire to make us whole. From his self-revelation at Mount Sinai to his self-giving at Calvary, this God's goal is to heal our brokenness, to enable us to be a people of truth, a people of peace, and a people of love. And yet, like Israel, we remain at a safe distance. We seek to enjoy the blessings without being touched by the fire, without engaging the relationship. And like Israel, we think, we convince ourselves that we can remain at a distance without becoming more distant. The Lord came down. He came near to give the people more, but Israel didn't want more. She only desired to keep what she had. Israel wanted freedom, but she didn't want transformation. Does that speak to where you are this morning? How many of you are opting for an as-is relationship with this God? How many of you are fine with the status quo with this God? How many of you are saying God is good because life is good? And God is good when life doesn't change. I mean, let's be honest. Isn't it easier? Come on. Isn't it easier to enjoy God's liberation? The freedom that we have in Christ? The Lutheran word we use is our justification. Isn't it great to know that we've been made right with God? Isn't that easier to take? And isn't it just just safer to opt out of what the Lutherans call our sanctification. We'll take our justification, we'll take the fact that we've been made right, we'll take the fact that we've been freed by this God, but let's opt out of that transformation. That's a little bit more complicated. That's gonna take a little bit more time. That's gonna require a little bit more effort from us. And so for many of us, we've been saved in Christ, But we want nothing more. Lord, hey, thank you. Thanks, Lord. Thanks for getting me back on my feet. Thanks for pulling me out of that hole. Thanks for answering that prayer. But you know what? I'll take it from here. I got this. Don't call me, okay? I'll call you. I'll let you know when I need something. Does that describe your relationship with this God? Thanks, God. I'll let you know when I need something. Beloved, we know that relationships don't work that way don't we? I mean, we know that relationships can't work that way. To remain distant in a relationship does nothing more than create more distance. I mean, think about your various relationships. Think about the various relationships in your life. They grow, they are vibrant, they remain vibrant, they grow, they endure when you stay in touch, right? When you check in, when you connect, if you don't catch up with those relationships, you drift apart. When one person in a relationship pulls away, it doesn't take long to fill that space, that energy, that focus with something or someone else. And that's why if we were to keep reading here, Yahweh's word to Moses when the people start to pull back from him is to remind the Israelites of the very first principle of the relationship, the first commandment. No other gods before me. No replacement idols made of silver and gold. Beloved, being distant from God is the first step toward idolatry. The temptation to fill that space, that distance with the God of our own making. I'd almost have you underline that word making because we're, that's our default. Our default is to make the God that we want in our lives. We are, can be so tempted to craft a God who is not so demanding, who is more accommodating, who oddly enough, whose desires and plans, oddly enough, are more in line with our own. Huh. It can be so tempting for us to make gods in silver and gold, as God says, do not do, because silver and gold look good on the outside. Silver and gold are attractive, and therefore, when we make our gods out of silver and gold, that makes our lives look nicer. That makes our lives more appealing. But what God tells us over and over again, what God reminds us is it's all surface. Deep down, these gods can't offer us anything. They don't motivate or inspire us. They can't hold us accountable or enable us to grow. What God is revealing is when we pull away, when we become distant, when we take that step toward idolatry, all we're trying to do is control the relationship. To help you to get some context for this, because maybe you don't have any gods that you make out of gold and silver, imagine if I came to meet you and kind of meet the community you're in, and I walked into your house to meet your peeps, and they were all a bunch of mannequins. That's the idea here. Some of you might be tempted to do this, because after all, mannequins, what's cool is you can dress them up however you want. They don't say stuff you don't want to hear, and in fact, they got to listen to you talk all day long. You guys might change your community. It might be an easier community to deal with. Bunch of mannequins. That, that's exactly what God is saying. That's what our relationship's going to become if you pull away from me. You're going to be talking to something that's not alive. You're going to be talking to someone who can't talk back to you. You're going to talk to someone who can't do anything to change your life. It's dangerous to remain at a distance, to isolate oneself And we know it's dangerous because, let me ask you this, how would we respond? How do we respond to this kind of rejection? How do you respond in your life when someone remains at a distance from you? You're giving yourself, and that person keeps putting up their hand and pushing you away. Don't most of us, when that happens in our lives, don't we, when we've been rebuffed enough, stop giving? Don't we stop trying? Because otherwise we're gonna get burned. It's dangerous to be isolated. For most of us, if someone remains at a distance from us, that usually means the end of the relationship. And so we move on. But how does Yahweh respond to Israel's rejection of intimacy? He refuses to give up. He doesn't pull back. He continues to pursue the relationship As Moses approaches the thick darkness, the Lord doesn't just talk to Moses. The Lord, through Moses, continues to seek the people, persisting in his invitation into a deeper relationship. His concern remains for the people as a whole. The Lord attempts to protect them from the danger, the risk of distance, as through Moses he reminds them of the threat of idolatry, the danger of being isolated. Beloved, this is the distance, the difference between this God and you and me. Where in our lives, when people remain at a distance, where we would draw a line in the sand, where we would make an ultimatum for the sake of justice, are you in or are you out? This God, this Yahweh, through the law, once again expresses grace. And if that's describing where you are today, if you are at a distance, God, if you are moving back and pushing this God away, if this describes where you are, that you are one who can say today, I am seeking the benefits, but I don't want to have anything to do with the benefactor, if this describes you this morning that you are comfortable, more comfortable talking to mannequins than real people, if you're more comfortable with your silver and your gold than this God, I'm here to tell you, thus saith the Lord, this God will not let you go. This God will not let you go. He continues to extend his instruction, his invitation. This God is relentless in his pursuit of us, in his desire to transform our lives. Beloved, for this God, justice isn't just blind, it's personal. I want to invite you, as there's an insert in your bulletin, and for this first movement in the word, there are two questions for reflection. So we take the offering as the ushers come forward. I want you to reflect on the two questions that are there. And let's make this work of our worship, this part of our service, not, service, not just about the money. But let us in this moment as we reflect on these questions, offer our very lives to this God. Let us not pull back. Let us draw close to this God who invites us into relationship.
1: I don't want to be the one Who decides what is right On my mind. Lord be praised Lord be praised I see you the Father sees All the hunger and disease People are crying please Lord in your mercy I know you're calling me To be your hands and be your feet Lord, you are what I need Fill me with mercy Oh, Lord, come Lord, please come Lord, be here Do, take all of me, make me more like you, Lord be raised, higher still, fill my heart with heaven's will, Lord be praised. Lord be praised, Lord be praised, all I do take all of me, make me more like you, Lord be raised higher still. Fill my heart with heaven's will, Lord be praised, Lord be praised.
0: other side of the ten words starting with chapter 21 we discover examples of what's known as case law if this happens then do this and I got to be honest with you this is the part of exodus that most people usually skip over or quit reading I mean after all all this stuff appears to be of little value unless you're a Hebrew slave in your sixth year of servitude all of this doesn't seem to have much to do with us unless you're here this morning because your master just knocked out your tooth. Or maybe you're here this morning and your neighbor's bull just gored your daughter. Or, or maybe you borrowed your friend's donkey and wouldn't you know it, it died while you were using it. Does that describe anybody's life this morning? we got to talk later, Bill. I mean, at first glance, we look at these chapters of case law upon case law and these regulations, these rules seem irrelevant for the 21st century, right? I mean, what in the world do these laws have to do with us centuries later in a different day and age? My brothers and sisters in Christ, I want us this week and next and maybe even a little after that for us not to get lost in the details but instead together to pull back and see the big picture. These case laws represent examples of putting the Ten Commandments into practice. If you will, it's the law revealed in the wilderness anticipating life as a community in the land that is to come. Underlying these practical rules for day-to-day life for the Israelites are principles that still have something to offer us today. And so if we step back and if we pay attention to these principles, we will see how relentless this God is in his pursuit. How much this God desires to be in relationship with us. How God seeks to be in relationship with us by getting down and dirty in the nitty gritty of our day-to-day lives. In the application of justice, God seeks to be present in our lives. But we'll also see that in the application of justice, we also mediate God's presence. God's grace to each other, to all nations and all creation. If you step back and just look at these laws, one of the principles that just jumps off the page is that how we live together, every relationship matters to this God. From these commands, we see that God is concerned with the well-being and integrity of the community. And if you read closely, that even goes to the domestic animals under our charge. All of these rules and regulations, pull, if we pull back, remind us in our 21st century lives that Even in the different world in which we live, for this God, I cannot live with just myself in mind. I'm not free to think and do only for myself. Life in relationship with the Lord means that I have my neighbor in view as well. I am my brother's keeper, I take a measure of responsibility for his or her well being with this God. Where a wrong has taken place, it must be righted. Violations within the community must be acknowledged. Restitution has to be made. But again, these case laws were not given merely for the sake of punishment. We casually read if we glance over these chapters and we think crime and punishment, but these case laws are not evidencing simply punishment. They are first given to us these countless examples To prevent wrongdoing. To protect the well-being of the community. To protect the trust and respect between my neighbor and me. Beloved, what we see through these case laws is that in God's economy, justice is not about being compelled to to do right. Right. Hear that again. In God's economy, justice is not about being compelled to do right. Justice is not about doing what is right, resolving disputes through power. In God's economy, it's about doing what is right out of gratitude to God. In God's economy, justice is being committed to finding resolutions out of carefulness, out of compassion for my neighbor. If I trust that God has my back, then that means that I'm free to have my neighbor's back. If I am thankful for God's provision, if I acknowledge it, if I proclaim it that God provides for me, then that will ensure that I can and I will provide for my neighbor too. Now this idea is probably best summed up by a single verse in all this case law that is known as the principle of lex talonis which you probably have never heard of before, but you know as an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You know, normally we hear this phrase quoted, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and we think it means tit for tat. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, tooth, that's vengeance, baby. You know what? You do something to me, and I'm going to do the same thing back to you. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But the actual meaning of this principle is not a license for vengeance. Vengeance. It's actually here in Exodus a prescription for equity. Or to put it in our modern language, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth is saying the punishment should fit the crime. This is a call for proportionality in the consequences of an action. This is a call for equal justice. The servant is to be treated with the same justice that the master is treated The poor man is to be treated with the same justice as the rich man. The female is to be treated with the same justice as the male. The foreigner is to be treated with the same justice as the native. At this time, and still frankly today, this is a radical, innovative standard for justice. Because back in the day, justice was kind of like that line in the untouchables. That line when Elliot Ness gets educated on how justice works in Chicago. When his partner says, they put one of yours in the hospital, you put one of theirs in the morgue. They pull a knife, you pull a gun. That's the Chicago way. That was the way before Yahweh revealed the standard of justice. You get them before they get you. They hit you, you hit them harder back. They take from you, you take so they'll never take from you again. But God says, no, that is not justice. God says you care for your neighbor by making restitution for the losses that he or she has borne because of your sin. You make restitution for the losses your neighbor has borne because of your sin. Whether it's willful sin, due to negligence, or it's unintentional sin, you make restitution for the losses that come because of your sin. But you don't take from your neighbor if it's their sin that's taken a loss from you more than you lost. You don't take more than what is proportional to the offense. In a world in which we live, this is still radical and innovative justice. In a world of lawsuits and counter lawsuits and punitive damages, maybe we should start reading Exodus again. And if we do, if there's any lawyers in the house and you're going to start reading Exodus, understand also another principle that kind of gets at us when we start reading between the lines. All of these case laws, they don't cover every every contingency. Nor were they intended to. We often have this stereotype that when we read the Old Testament and it changes in the New, God gets, as I said before, a better personality. But in the Old Testament, God lays down the law. And the law, according to God, is strict and rigid until Jesus comes and kind of makes it a little bit more flexible. But here in the Old Testament, contrary to what we believe, what we see here in Exodus is justice for God is not about strict, rigid rules. For God, justice is about consistency. For God, justice is about equity. For God, justice is about flexible principles for living. This God understands that life today isn't necessarily guaranteed to be the same way tomorrow. And if you read this, you may go, yeah, but Pastor Chris, I'm, I got my Bible open right now, and I'm thumbing through here, and it seems like the repeated consequences over and over again that are outlined are death or a fine. That seems pretty strict and rigid to me. <laughs> but what you fail to miss, if you don't read carefully, is that within the law, God gives a tremendous amount of discretion in the administration of justice. If you read carefully, you'll notice in the law's application, maiming, woundings, burnings are not literally exacted as payments in kind, but God sets them out to give an equivalency to allow the possibility of a ransom to be paid, to pay a reasonable fine to make restitution for what's been lost. The standard of an eye for an eye is given as the upper limit set down to forbid the escalation of violence, to forbid the Chicago way. What we see, beloved, is for this God, contrary to how we often think, justice is not meant to be punitive. Justice is not about destroying lives and eroding community. For this God, justice is meant to be restorative, it's to allow for the rebuilding of relationships and community. And how we know this, how we are sure that this is what God is about when he speaks of justice is what bookends all of this case law. What comes up again and again is this principle. Our work of justice for God is to develop out of our worship of God. Our work of justice for God is to flow naturally out of our worship of God. What this means, beloved, as Jesus said, our relationship with God cannot be divorced from our life with our neighbor. And, and that's important for us to hear because if you're like me, we have a tendency to compartmentalize our lives like files on a computer. We try to keep the data, events, and relationships of our lives in different folders. Okay, I've got my family life in this folder over here, I've got my work life over in this folder over here, I've got my social life in this folder over here, and I've got my relationship with God in my nice little religious folder over here. Nice and tidy. But with this case law, God is screaming through these different examples. He's telling us that he cannot, he will not fit into just one folder. This God is concerned with every aspect of our lives, all of our relationships. This Lord refuses to reside in what we like to talk about as the center of our spiritual lives. Well, yes, God's at the center of my spiritual life, as if somehow there's these other parts of our life that God's not involved in. There is no spiritual life. There's life. And God's involved in all of it. God demands, insists, and refuses to stay out of how we live and get along with each other. To put it another way, for this God, it is not enough to be merely pious. God, this God, calls us to be publicly moral. It's great that you showed up this morning. It's so good that we're committed together. We've sang some worship. We're going to pray, and we're going to come and receive communion. It is so awesome that we've praised the living God, but it is absolutely for nothing if we walk out those doors and all that we've sung together, all that we've committed to through prayer, all that we've embodied through coming to the table goes out the window when we engage the reality of that world. If that's the life we're living, this God steps back and says, uh, sorry, time out, I don't know you. Jesus said, I never knew you. This God is not interested in our religious life, our spiritual life, being just personally pious. This God wants us to be publicly moral. In other words, if you're not getting it, the clearest indication, beloved, that we are a just people, the clearest indication that we are worshiping the Lord right is evidenced by doing right to our neighbors. We can't call upon the name of the Lord. We can't praise it. We can't petition it. We can't invoke it if we aren't heeding the word of the Lord in every aspect of our life. In community. In how we work, play, and how we treat each other. If we want to grow in our relationship with God, if this God's drawing close and we aren't pulling back, we have to discover his presence, realize his presence in the application of justice. And what that means is that we've got to surrender it all to Him every file, every folder, every aspect of our life, including how we treat each other. Now, I can't speak for you, but I can speak for me. This is insanely difficult. I'm a compartmentalizer, man. I like my religious folder, it's pretty. I like my folders, it's neat and tidy. If God gets in all of my stuff, it gets messy. It gets complicated. I can't keep it the way that I want it. And so when God speaks this way through his word to me, I'm driven to my knees. I need to confess. I need to say to this God, all right, I've done it again. Yes, my life belongs to you. Yes, okay, even that folder, it's yours. Beloved, in this moment... ...of our worship, let us continue our work as the people of God. And I invite you again, with the handout that's there... two questions to spur you if you're struggling for what to offer... ...let us take a moment and silently confess... ...before this God where we have been careless... ...rather than careful when it comes to our neighbor. Let's together silently confess, let's acknowledge before this God... ...where we have mistaken vengeance for justice where we have denied equal justice to the least and lowest around us, I invite you in the silence that will fill this room to offer these things up to God as a confession. And then Drew is going to bring us out of that time of confession. Let's get on our knees and lay ourselves before the living God.
2: God, thank you for this reminder in our lives that the way we feel you in here, the way that we interact with you is not the end of our journey with you, but it's the beginning and it's you sending us out. Father, I'm sorry for forgetting that. Father, I'm sorry for thinking that everything you want is for me to just know more about you or for me to just sing louder to you. Father, I pray that you just increase my passion, our passion for your work, but God it's 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 frightening out there. We need your strength. We need your courage. So father, just fill us up with your power. God, I pray that you just make it so evident to us whenever you're speaking to us through your spirit whenever you lead people into our lives, God, that you just make that so clear to us and you just continue to give us opportunities to practice feeling you and hearing you and being led by you. God, keep giving us opportunities to go and be the church. In your holy and precious name, amen.
0: probably put the cart before the horse. Out in the world, if you watch any television, when you're in trouble with the law, before you make a confession, what do you need to do? What? Get Get a lawyer. It's funny how it's backwards here in the church. When you're in trouble with the law, you hire a lawyer and As Yahweh reveals himself through the giving of the law to the Israelites, the people cry out, you know what we need is a good lawyer. And so they turn to Moses and they say, hey, you're going to be our lawyer. And in one sense, they got it wrong, but in another sense, they got it right. Because before the requirements of the law, my brothers and sisters, we all need a good lawyer. Because the law in and of itself is not enough. The law in and of itself is not enough. Gandhi once put it this way. An eye for an eye will make the whole world blind. He kind of overstated the point a bit, but he still got it right. The application of this law will not blind the world. But the application of this law, this law will not save the world either. All the law does is establish a foundation for justice. It reveals that for the sake of our neighbor, there are limits. There are boundaries we cannot cross. And for the sake of our neighbor, there are consequences when we do. Restitution that must be made. We all want justice. We all want justice. The thing is, in a world of contested verdicts, in a world of repeated appeals, hung juries, in a world where the court of a public opinion is bigger than the Supreme Court itself, we don't always agree on what justice requires. When we're the victim, we want the perpetrator to suffer more than we did. We quote, An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, when we are seeking punishment, when we have been wronged. But isn't it funny how we never quote an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth when we are in the wrong, when we are the perpetrator? My brothers and sisters in Christ, what we all need is a good lawyer. And Jesus is our promised mediator, Jesus is that lawyer. Like a good lawyer, he stands in the gap and he explains the law's meaning. Jesus said, you have heard an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, turn the other cheek. Jesus isn't contradicting Moses here. He's correcting our misinterpretation of the law. And Jesus goes beyond an eye for an eye because the point of justice, as we just reflected on, is not vengeance. It is to serve grace. The point of justice is to serve grace. And grace is only possible in a world of justice. The law's intention with this God was never simply to balance the scales. For many of us, we think that's as good as the law can get. That's as good as justice can get. Balance the scales. But with this God, the law, the point of justice was to establish how great the losses are how great the losses are incurred through our sin, the point of justice was to make us aware of how seemingly impossible the demands are that must be born to make things right. We may be able to balance the scales with each other, and even that is debatable. But we cannot get it even close when it comes to this God. We remain at a distance from this God. But this God is so relentless in his pursuit of us that he draws near to us in the person of Jesus Christ. This God who is willing to get into the nitty gritty of our daily lives through case law gets down and dirty in the flesh and blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus is the perfect mediator because he fulfills the law's intention. He brings justice He brings justice as the offended party comes to bear the cost himself. He bears the losses that the law demands. He provides the restitution that is needed, but not to punish, but to restore the community of humanity. On the cross, Jesus turns his cheek to a world that has given him a cosmic slap in the face. He does it to uphold justice does it to reveal grace Jesus makes grace more than a word more than a good idea Jesus makes grace possible tangible real in our lives and it's the kind of grace that enables people like us sinners like you and me to actually be just to make things right when we are in the wrong. It's a grace that enables people like us to show mercy rather than to get what is supposed to be coming to us when we have been wronged. It's so interesting that when we quote an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, we miss the words that come right before the start of that phrase. Do you know what they are? Life for life. Life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Beloved, Jesus establishes the true meaning of life for life. He comes to the guilty and says, life for life. But he doesn't say, yours for mine. He says, mine for yours. we prepare to come to this table, as we prepare to experience what the word proclaims, the embodiment of justice, the reality of grace, let us, as we come to this table, extend this life we have been given in Jesus Christ, this forgiveness that we have been given in Christ by standing and greeting
2: each other with the peace and love of Jesus. I invite you to do that.